let's start by, let's look at, um, look at Exodus 19. No, I told you a story. Look at Leviticus first. Let's not go to Mount Sinai yet. We'll go to Mount Sinai in just a moment, but I don't want to go to Mount Sinai yet. Go to Leviticus. Um, Mount Sinai gets associated with Shavuot or Pentecost, but not not early on, not early on. So uh, back to Leviticus 23, our, our standard text that we keep looking at. And you see in 23, you see in 23, 15 and following, and this is a review because we've already talked about this way back when we introduced all of the festivals. This, um, and I'll read this, and this will give you some more introductory material about Shavuot or Pentecost. And then we'll eventually look at Acts chapter 2 because, of course, that's where Pentecost is in the Christian Bible. Look at verse 15, chapter 23. Uh, this is that chapter that talks about the seven festivals of the Jewish people. Verse 15, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. Now, stop there, but go back to first fruits. Remember how Pentecost happened, not Pentecost, excuse me. Remember how Passover happens, and then particular week Jesus was crucified, crucified on Passover. The next day was a Sabbath. You know, they had to get him off the cross quick because Sabbath was coming. Then the first day after the Sabbath, after Passover, is first fruits. So we, we've looked at that for a couple of weeks. First fruits would be Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. While Jesus is raising from the, gra- from the grave, uh, in the temple, they're celebrating first fruits. So that's 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 the beginning. That's the Sabbath sp- being spoken of here. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. So after the day of resurrection, after the day of resurrection, you count seven full weeks, and then you have the fiftieth day. The word Pentecost is Greek for fiftieth. That's why we use the Greek term in the Christian community. Uh, We don't use the Hebrew term, Shavuot. We use Pentecost, 50th day. So you've got those three festivals together, Passover, Sabbath, and uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, of which the first day of Feast of Unleavened Bread, or actually the second day of Feast of Unleavened Bread, is uh, Festival of First Fruits. Then you count seven weeks, and your 50th day happens. So Pentecost is the 50th day for us Christians, 50th day after Easter, right? You know that. This year, when's Pentecost? Well, that's good answer, 50 days after Easter. So this year, Pentecost is the first Sunday of June, is Pentecost. Pentecost moves around because Easter moves around. In the Jewish community, Pentecost moves around because first fruits moves around. Uh, but it's 50 days. 50 days. Remember the 40 days after resurrection, Jesus had his post-resurrection appearances. Uh, most of those you see in, in the Gospel of John. Then, uh, t- then he, he ascends to the Father, and then 10 days later, on the 50th day, 10 days later, that's when you have the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus returns in the power of the Holy Spirit to the church. So you get your math here from Leviticus twenty three fifteen. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, 
from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. We talked about that last week. First fruits, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain. Uh, at first fruits, that offering is barley. It comes early. At Pentecost, the offering is wheat. Uh, it takes longer to do the wheat. Wheat's much better than barley, which is why Pentecost, Shavuot in the Jewish world, is so connected with the wheat harvest. Guess, guess which book they read from the Hebrew Bible about a particular female uh, that they read on Pentecost? Ruth. Remember the field, the gleaning, the wheat. Yeah, so um, that, that's the gleaning of the wheat field. So um, you're, doing, you're doing wheat at Pentecost, you do barley at first fruits, you got s- seven weeks in between. So uh, you got that, that going on. Then you shall produce, present your grain offering of the new grain to the Lord. You shall bring forth, verse 17, you shall bring forth from your dwelling place. And this has generated a lot of conversation for the last couple thousand years. You shall bring from your dwelling place two loaves. So two loaves, not one, not three, but two loaves. But notice these are loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, because the wheat harvest has come in now. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. So these are leavened loaves as first fruits to the Lord. So there's your word first fruit again. So first fruit sort of happens twice. It happens on the Sunday following Passover, Resurrection Day for us, first fruit of resurrection. But there's a sense where you're presenting the first fruit of your wheat harvest on Pentecost. So in a sense, and we'll look at this in Acts chapter 2, there's a sense in which Pentecost is also the beginning of another harvest for us. And you can begin thinking, fleshing that out in your own mind. Look at verse 18. And you shall present with you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with a grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with pleasing aroma. That just tells you how to celebrate. And it goes on to say, Don't do any ordinary work. Look at verse twenty two. This is where Ruth comes in. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, such as a Ruth. And I am the Lord your God. So that's one place you're given the um, kind of basic instructions about um, Shavuot. Let me show you another place. If you will look at, go back to Exodus now for a minute. We need to spend a little bit of time in Exodus if you go back to Exodus, um, and you know a lot of the stuff that's, that's going on in Exodus, of course, the, the Exodus from Egypt, uh, then they get out into Mount Sinai, and you remember the giving of the law. You remember all this from Charlton Heston, the giving of the law, uh, the, 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 the golden calf episode. So you, you've got all that going on in Exodus, because what's going to happen with Shavuot is um, the, 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 the wheat harvest is going to also get connected with Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. And, um, and you have to know that to be able to start making it make sense to, um, 
to our Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. Look at Exodus 23, which is, of course, right after the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus 23. Uh, just to uh, um, show you something that's kind of interesting. Uh, 23:14. This is another little passage about the festivals. Verse 14, three times in the year you shall keep a feast for me. We've talked about there's three pilgrim festivals. Again, this is going to have a big, big role to play in Acts chapter 2. There's three pilgrim festivals. Uh, there's Passover, then there's Shavuot or Pentecost, and then there's going to be booths in the fall. And if at all possible, particularly while the temple is standing, if at all possible you made your way back to Jerusalem for those um, three festival festival pilgrimage festivals. So verse 15, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I command you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time of the month of Abib and in it you shall come out for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest. That's another word for feast of weeks which is another word for Shavuot which is another word for Pentecost, feast of wheat, feast of harvest because grain, uh, wheat harvest, feast of weeks because seven weeks. Uh, you shall keep this feast of weeks of the first fruits of your labor, of what you saw in, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering, another name for Sukkot, at the end of the year. At this point, you still see it's basically an agricultural festival, agricultural feast. Feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, uh, when you gather in from the field the fruits of labor, that's your final harvest. Three times in the year you shall make your males appear before the Lord, your Lord God. Since we're reading here... Um, because what happens right here at this point, just some specific laws. Uh, if you look at verse 18, interesting. Look at verse 19, interesting. If you look at how, ver this is your trivia for today. If you look at verse 19, at the end of verse 19, it says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You know what the Jewish community has gotten out of that? No cheeseburgers. You cannot mix meat and dairy. Cannot, yeah, in the Jewish world, you don't mix meat and dairy ever. You keep separate utensils. That's why if you go to Israel, you got McDonald's, and right beside you got Mac Cafe. Because if you want your coffee, what you gonna want to put in that coffee? Maybe milk, cream, dairy. So Mac Cafe and McDonald's are separate. But yeah, in Orthodox Judaism, you don't mix meat and dairy ever. Um, that's why if you go with me to Israel, you've got dairy in the morning for your breakfast, no meat. You got meat at night, no dairy. Um, but they get all of that from, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I, I like cheeseburgers well enough, I might could argue that they're misinterpreting that verse. <laughs> but that's the, way they have, that's the way the rabbis have dealt with it over the centuries. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You don't mix meat and dairy. Anyway, that's your trivia today since we're right there at it. You can't boil. You can't take the mother's milk and boil the meat in it. You know, I don't know why you'd want to. I'm sure some people do that. I wouldn't really want to boil it in water, but uh, boil it in milk. I guess that'd be a soup. That's a soup. You can't make a meat soup with a milk base. So, yeah. So, but, but particularly in, in rabbinic Judaism, when you look at something like that and say, hmm, wonder what that means, they can't leave it there and walk away. They're going to work on that for a few hundred years. They figure out what it means. 
And the way they use it now is no cheeseburgers or no meat, no meat at breakfast. So anyway, so there's two passages. Now while you're next, those are the two passages, two, two of the passages that just talk about the basics of Shavuot, Harvest Festival, you know, the beginning of the wheat harvest. Uh, so we know it's an agricultural festival. By the time of Jesus, by the time of Jesus, something else got connected, and this is critical to understand what we mean by Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. By the time of Jesus, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai got connected with Sukkot because they did the math the best way they thought they could do the math. And guess how many days it took them when they left Egypt to get to Mount Sinai? Fifty. So by the time of Jesus... A uh, big part of Sukkot, uh, Shavuot, a big part of Pentecost, Festival of Weeks, Festival of Harvest, um, gets tied with Moses um, and the giving of the law. You know, they come to the mount. He goes up on top of the mountain, gets the commandments, comes down. They have the golden calf issue. He goes back. He does some stuff to them. Three, well, by the way, 3,000 die. Remember that passage with the golden calf issue? He melts the calf. He makes them drink it. 3,000 die. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this book. I commend it to you. Um, 3,000 die. The reason I say that is on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit fell, you want to just take a guess at how many people are baptized? Luke tells you 3,000. 3,000 died on the first Pentecost. 3,000 are filled with the Spirit and baptized on the, the Christian Pentecost. Anyway, while you're there, look at Exodus before you get to the Ten Commandments. Um, Ten Commandments, by the way, is chapter 20 of Exodus. Look at chapter 19 just to show you the picture. And again, it's going to call into remembrance Charlton Heston, all that stuff, but I think it's better in the Bible even. If you, if you, here's the picture of what they saw, of what occurred when the, when the Torah was given. Again, Torah is their word. It gets translated law. Sometimes it's law of Moses. They would much prefer we translate it instruction or wisdom. Anyway, this is when they're getting ready to get the chapter 20, 10 commandments. Chapter 19, look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders. There's noise and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp down at the base of the mountain trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire, all this stuff's going, you're going to revisit it in Acts chapter 2. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder, more noise. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Moses gets the Ten Commandments. So keep that image of Sinai and the giving of the law. 
You got fire symbolizing the presence of God. You got the noise. You got the storm, thunder, soon wind. It's kind of a storm. Uh, you know, if you remember Ten Commandments, you look up at the mountain and there's dark clouds gathering around the top of the mountain. That's probably pretty much what's being described here. So that is the scene as, um, as God has given the Ten Commandments. And by the time of Jesus, that was as much a part of their, their Pentecost, their Shavuot, as that harvest piece, the coming of the wheat. So with that, now go to Acts chapter 2. And we'll start looking at the Christian Pentecost, which of course is, we think, is the fulfillment of the Jewish Pentecost. It is the 50th day. That's all Pentecost means. That's why Jews have it. We have it. It's Greek for 50th day. Um, and you probably know what happens in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. We usually celebrate it as the birthday of the church. I've never been strongly comfortable calling it the birthday of the church. Uh, birthday of the church could be when the disciples are called out, when he starts gathering with people. What's a better, and again, I know the connection to Shavuot, what happens at Pentecost is the empowering of the church, uh, the spiritual infilling of the church. Um, it's, you know, Jesus already called these people and he said, wait, wait in Jerusalem till you get the gift of the Father, the promise of the Father. So they're waiting there in Jerusalem, and then Acts chapter 2 happens. Uh, back to Moses a moment. You leave Egypt. You've been in slavery. You leave Egypt. You, you, you wander for 49, 50 days. You end up at Mount Sinai. That's when the law is given. In a sense, it's almost as if you got these ex-slaves who have now been cut loose. They're in the wilderness. They have to make their way to Sinai, and that's where they learn how to live as a people. Uh, part of what you celebrate in the Jewish world for, for uh, Shavuot is the creation of the people through the giving of the law, through the giving of Torah. Torah instructed them as a people, but Torah also made them a people. Uh, that's how they learned how to live separately among all the other people. You know, don't eat that pork because the pagans are eating pork. And we don't want you hanging out with the pagans on Friday night. So it was the giving of the law that really, the creation of the covenant through the giving of the law that took these ex-slaves from Egypt and sort of created a community out of them. And again, that's part of what the Jewish community celebrates at their Shavuot. So again, I hope that you're connecting the dots in your brain. That's a big part of what Pentecost is for us. You know, we're delivered 50 days before. We're delivered through Passover, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We're delivered. We're set free. We're set free from slavery to sin and death and the devil and ourselves. We're set free. And then 50 days later, we receive the law. 50 days later, we receive the ability to live as the covenant people of God through Jesus Christ. Fifty days later, this uh, amazing thing happens where, again, there's signs and there's sounds and there's noise. Uh, maybe not as dramatic as Charlton Heston, Cecil B. DeMille, but, you know, I'm sure there's been some depictions of the upper room and uh, the day of the Christian day of Pentecost and the filling with the Holy Spirit uh, that you could almost make about as uh, dramatic as, as Sinai. So you keep all that in mind. 
And then you come to Acts chapter 2. So we're 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension. The church is still in Jerusalem because Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem. Don't go back to Galilee. Stay in Jerusalem to receive the promise of the Father. So they're still in Jerusalem. And our Pentecost happens. Our Shavuot happens. Um, Look at verse 1, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost, my translation says, arrived. The Greek word there is probably better translated something like, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. When the day of Pentecost had been fulfilled. It just, you know, this day just didn't show up, but this day had been longed for, yearned for, prepared for, worked for, and finally it's it's fully come. The day of Pentecost has come. They were all together in one place. Now I wonder who these all are. You learned in chapter 1 of Acts, there's 120 of them. There's the disciples plus 120. Um... If you didn't have chapter 1, you might say, how are they all in one room? And maybe come to the conclusion they aren't all in one room. But you do have chapter 1 where you're told they were all in one room. So they're in one large upper room environment. Um, You're shown an upper room in Jerusalem today. It's actually a room that very much post-dates uh, the time of Jesus, but it's probably in the right location, and it's probably about the right size that you need to get 120 people in it. So these 120 people, the, the, the original disciples minus Judas, who's now been replaced by who? Matthias. And these others that make up to 120. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, fully arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, here comes the Mount Sinai type stuff. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Uh, You'll notice also the the word like. So uh, it's not a mighty rushing wind, but there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So there's just a sound. And it fills the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of or like fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. We don't really know, we're not real sure what divided tongues would look like, what that means. And again, it's just like, like divided tongues, like fire. You've seen some, there's great artwork. And what you usually see is um, sort of about a tongue size piece of fire on top of their heads, this sort of cloven, kind of divided and held together. Uh, none of us are real sure what any of that means, but it does say divided tongues. But tongues are going to become real important. It can be obvious what that means. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Usually if you see artwork from the Middle Ages of Pentecost, you've got the apostles there and you've got this little flame above their heads. Um, rest on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, all 120, there's men and women in this room. You're going to learn that later in the story. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The word began there implies that it continued. But they started here. Started to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. The New Testament knows of 
two discussions of the gift of tongues. Um, there's one in 1 Corinthians, and then we have what's in Acts. In Acts, and I bet some of your translations don't say, doesn't say tongues. Some of your translations may say languages. Yeah. Uh, it appears pretty certainly here in Acts, these tongues are languages. Uh, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians is a different kind of supernatural event. Here it looks like languages because he's going to explain it to you. And it's pretty clear it's languages. So um, they all, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they all began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance, as the Spirit gifted them. It was not something they had learned. It wasn't something they picked up from travels. But the Spirit gifted them to speak in other languages. So that, there you see the first four verses. That's the event. That's the Christian Pentecost. Uh, I suspect on the first Sunday of June, you'll hear it read. That plus probably more of chapter 2. That's the Christian Pentecost. And it's a package deal. You need to know as much about Pentecost as you do Good Friday and Easter. It's all a package deal. Uh, this is the return of the Spirit of Jesus to his people 50 days after, after resurrection. So in the first four verses, you're, you're, you're painted the picture. And we hear echoes of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. If you remember Jeremiah talking about the new covenant, he talked about the new covenant being a covenant not written on stone, but written where? On our hearts. So the new covenant is a covenant agreement with God that's not written on stone, but written on our hearts. Again, that fits this in Christian theology. The Holy Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts. Um, that's what's happening is the Holy Spirit fills these people. Part of what's happening, and this may be a good time to say this. One of the Sunday school classes asked me this this past week. Let me give you the big picture of the, the meta-narrative of um, what God has done in, in the last um, 3,500 years um, or beyond. Let me, I'm going to take you back to creation. And the Jews are really good at this, and it is so obvious and easy to add the Christian climax. I'm not, I'm a little surprised they don't just agree with us all the time. But let's look, they're in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve is walking with God in the cool of the garden. Adam and Eve is just being real chummy with God and having conversation. It must have been amazing. But then chapter 3 comes along, sin happens, rebellion happens. They're cast out of the garden. So that kind of immediate fellowship with God is over. Angel put at the entrance to the garden, cast out of the garden. So then God begins to communicate through Moses. Then after Moses, God continues to communicate through prophets and priests. You know, uh, if God wanted to get a word to um, the people, usually that they were doing wrong, he raised up a prophet. And a prophet would go and be among the people. Well, we know that at the end of the Hebrew Bible, there are 400, the prophets fade away at the end of the Hebrew Bible. They know that. They talk about that. The prophets fade away. And um, now there's been some good Jewish authors who have written, and you have yeah, to say, well, wonder why. Where'd the prophets go to? Why did we have prophets for a while? You had, we had God for a while. And then we have prophets for a while, and then 400 years... God is silent. 
And by the way, as a Christian, we talk about he was silent until John the Baptist broke the silence. But anyway, they quit the story with the silence. So you got 400 years of silence. Now, if you read Jewish authors, they'll say something like, there's a great book called The, the Hidden God, where the Jewish author says part of what's going on in that grand picture was God was growing up his people. He was helping them learn how to walk on their own. That's why he kind of removed prophets from them. They need to learn it themselves and do it themselves. And there's probably some truth in that. Um, but particularly from a Christian perspective, we probably be quick to acknowledge we didn't do it well. So after 400 years, guess what happens? The silence is broken. A prophet arrives, and he's screaming out there in the Jordan River. So he, that's why if you look at the Gospels, you know, he was the greatest of the Old Covenant and the beginner, beginner of the New Covenant. Um, so there's John the Baptist. All of a sudden, the prophet is back. What's the prophet doing? He, he's prophesying the coming of Messiah. So then Messiah comes, God very much, almost walking in the cool of the garden again with people. But then he's crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, 10 days of teaching. And then he... Um, ascends to the Father, then on the 50th day, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. So from a, from a meta-narrative, big picture of the Christian faith concept, you don't really need prophets now because where do you hear the voice of God? Yeah, within you. Um, one of the big changes, too, between Old Testament and New Testament, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would fall on people for certain jobs. That's why, like, for instance, over certain tasks, over certain time periods, the Holy Spirit would fall and go away, come and go away. That's why in um, uh, Psalm 51, David is praying that great penitential psalm, and he says to God, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's probably not even an appropriate prayer for Christians because we're on this side of Pentecost now. So what you see in the Hebrew Bible, I mean, even like when they build the temple, the, the, the handy men that built the temple, the masons, it says the Holy Spirit fell on them so that they could build the temple. They could do their work. They could do their artistic work. So in the whole Hebrew Bible, the Holy Spirit comes and goes, falls on people for certain tasks, and then goes back. Uh, what you have in the Christian dispensation is the Spirit now abides with us. The Spirit now takes up residency in us. That's, that's, that's the conviction of every branch of the Christian church. That's our Pentecost and post-Pentecost conviction. The Holy Spirit lives in every Christian. So that's kind of where the prophetic word has gone to now. Some people allow the Spirit to speak more boldly in them than others. And that's why... You know, there are certain prophetic people out there. I mean, when, Doc, when Dr. King was talking to us about race relations, he wasn't telling us anything we didn't know. He just spoke it boldly and reminded us. So the, but all of us have the Spirit residing in us, which is why I ask myself on a daily basis and ask congregations regularly, as a Christian, you have the Spirit. So what's the next question? Does the Spirit have you? Yeah, the Holy Spirit can be quite a gentleman in our lives. C.S. Lewis, speaking about God one time in the screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis says, speaking of God, he can only woo, he never ravishes. There are days I wish he had ravished me. I wish he would just straighten me out, send me a text message, knock me off my horse, whatever it took. 
but the natural, normal way that God works through the power of the Holy Spirit within us is He never ravishes, He woos. Actually, in the screw tape layers, what you learn is the devil is the one that will ravish you and destroy your life. God woos. God is gentle. But it's because we all have this Holy Spirit living within us. Um, so that's the big picture, if you never got the picture of the whole Bible. So that's where the prophetic voice is now with it, within, within each one of us. We have become a kingdom of priests, to use a biblical term. That's what God told Moses he wanted the covenant community to be, a kingdom of priests and prophets. Um, didn't quite happen, but it's happening now. We have that prophetic priestly spirit in us. Uh, we just have to learn how to give that prophetic priestly spirit uh, free reign in us. So that's what's happening here. Pentecost is a big deal in the Christian community, just as it is in the Jewish community. For them, it's the giving of the law and uh, the beginning of the Harvest Festival. But in that giving of the law, they're made into a people, and they're told how to live. In the gift of the Holy Spirit that we celebrate on Pentecost, we're made a people, and we're given the um, Spirit of God so that we can live appropriately. So... That's the gift of Pentecost. Then, we'll look at a few more verses. Look at the reaction. Look at the reaction of the people as they watch this Pentecostal Mount Sinai-type event happen here in Jerusalem. Uh, here's their reaction. Number five, verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under the heaven. Remember I told you about Shavuot? It's a pilgrimage festival. If at all possible, Jews from wherever, uh, particularly in Jesus' day, as long as the temple is standing, made their way back to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage festival. So that's why, uh, while the Christians, those 120, are filled with the Spirit, Jerusalem is packed out with Jews from all over the world because they're celebrating the Jewish Pentecost, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, Again, they heard the sound. At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one hears the miracle of hearing. For each one of them was hearing them, the apostles, the 120, speaking in his own language. Uh, so as far as the apostles go, they, they're making noise. But the people listening from all over the world, the Jews from all over the world, that have come into Jerusalem for, for Shavuot. Um, they hear... They hear it in their language. It's a, it's a miracle of hearing. Verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, I bet they were, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And you already you know the story about Peter in the courtyard and the people saying to them, Aren't you one of the Galileans? They had their own dialect up north in the Galilee. Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. And Luke, the author of Acts, won't just leave it there. He wants to tell you about some of these, some of these people. So he gives you a list beginning at verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites. But again, keep in mind, these are Jews that was living in Parthia and uh, Medea and Elam. So Parthian Jews, Median Jews, Elamite Jews, Parthians and Medes and Elamites. That's pretty much modern day Iran. You got to go that way from, from Judea. And residents of Mesopotamia, that's the region further around modern day Iran. And we, we did, particularly in this age, more than, not, not now so much, but particularly in this age, that, era, that area is filled with Jewish people. 
some modern-day Iran, around the Mesopotamian River. Mesopotamia means between two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. So you get over there all around Iran and rock that area. Judea, of course, that's the region around Jerusalem. Um, in in Jesus' day, or 50 days after Jesus, Judea would also include Samaria and what we would t- today call Syria. So we're hearing these people from Parthia, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and here we go the other direction, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Uh, some of you have traveled with me, you know that's Turkey. That's modern-day Turkey. We call it Turkey. Um, uh, the Roman Empire called it Asia Minor. Uh, actually, the Roman Empire called it Asia. To differentiate it today, we call that Asia Minor, because when we think Asia, we think China and all that stuff. But Rome called modern-day Turkey Asia. So that's where you would have Cappadocia in the center, Pontius, uh, Asia is that whole region, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Phrygia and Pamphylia are regions there that Paul would eventually travel through. So keep traveling. Then Egypt. We know there's a large group of Jews in Egypt, particularly around Alexandria. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Serene and visitors from Rome. You ever wonder why when Paul goes to Rome, there's already a thriving church there? Well, there were people here at Pentecost from Rome who received the Holy Spirit. Jews who received the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see at the end of this chapter, 3,000 are baptized. Well, of course, after, after Shavuot, what do they do? They go back home. So uh, the world gets kind of evangelized this way. But you even have visitors from the center of the empire, the center of their known world in Rome, uh, both Jews and proselytes. So when he says both Jews and proselytes, what are proselytes? Just converts. If you proselyte, if you, if you go to Israel today, they'll tell you you cannot proselyte. That's evangelize. That's the more negative word for evangelize. That's why I may have mentioned to her, I mentioned somebody, if you go to Jerusalem, the Mormons, this fascinates me, the Mormons have a nice university in Jerusalem, and the Mormons are told they cannot proselyte. I just, I've often wondered, wonder how that's working. But, um, yeah, so proselytes are just converts, so you got Jews and people who have converted to Judaism. Um, we, if you keep reading in the book of Acts, you're going to learn about God-fearers. God-fearers are Gentiles who have just connected themselves to the Jewish people because they appreciate all the Jewish ethics. They appreciate their standards of living. They appreciate their image of the one God, the one God who is holy, not petty, but holy. Um, those are God-fearers. Proselytes, though, are those who made complete conversion to Judaism. So for a man, that would mean, thank you, circumcision. Uh, hard sale, but yeah, circumcision. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, that's from the Isle of Crete, Cretans and Arabians. Now, in, in this day, Arabia would be across the Jordan River, the modern-day country of Jordan, down through uh, the Nabataean Empire, which is where Petra is, if you know about Petra, uh, the amazing stone, that, that city carved into the stone that some people became aware of because of Indiana Jones. But all that was what is Arabia in in first century. So you've got people here from all over. These are Jews from what we call the diaspora. They're already spread out. From the time of Jesus, there were more Jews outside the Holy Land than inside the Holy Land. Uh, They've been under diaspora since the Assyrians took them, the Babylonians took them. You know, some go back, but a lot of them stay away. But they come for the pilgrimage. Jesus' day anyway, they come for the pilgrimage. 
So um, Luke wants you to know what he means when these Jews are from all over the world. Um, And then again, you're told, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So that's the miracle. Again, Sinai, there was noise, there was fire, uh, there was um, supernatural events. So it feels kind of like a Sinai event here. Um, And again, verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed. I'm sure they were. Saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new, fresh, good wine. Now, that's where we're going to stop at because Peter's getting ready to stand up and preach. Preach a Pentecost sermon, preach a Shavuot sermon. You're going to hear the first of 30 sermons or speeches in the book of Acts here. Um, but I just think it's kind of always, it's kind of humorous to me when they, when these people are trying to figure out what these, what's going on, they say they're filled with new fresh wine. What's going to be Peter's answer? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. They haven't had time yet to, yeah. So that's going to be Peter's answer. That's in the book. It's going to be Peter's answer. They're not inebriated. Unless you want to say inebriated by the Holy Spirit, they're not inebriated. Um, that's going to be Peter's answer when we start. We'll do next week, verse 14. Then You're going to see him quoting Joel. Again, back to Shavuot and what all that means. But we'll, we'll, we'll stop at verse 13.